0: We continue our worship by going to a time of fellowship. The psalmist says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. We've been going through Psalm 119 here. The acrostic poem, this is the part labeled he, in the, at least that's how it's pronounced in the English, the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the psalmist here is telling us that God's law teaches him and he prays that he would be receptive to God's teaching. He says, incline my heart. Turn my eyes. Confirm your promise. I yearn for your precepts. He recognizes he has a need for the righteousness of Christ in order to live in this world. We all, like that, are dependent upon God's word. Allow the Lord to incline your heart. Turn your eyes. Confirm his promises this morning as the word of God is preached to you. May the Lord's preaching of God's word do that for us today.
1: I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 5. So we'll turn out, uh, grab your, your notes and hopefully use them to follow along and understand this passage as we study it uh, uh, together. So I'm not ready to go to Zechariah, my own personal study, so this past week I uh, chose to do um, uh, go back to this series on the glory of God's grace, which I'll continue to do, Lord willing, throughout the course of my pulpit ministry, but... Uh, Um, this is a fantastic passage and a wonderful text. And so let's spend some some time fellowshipping around it. The focus will be 22 and 23, but we're going to read verse 16 through the end, um, uh, at least till 24. And uh, so with that, brothers and sisters, let me invite you to stand together with me as we read God's word. Hear now God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, And you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are um, evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. let Father, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege you've given us to come here now, this holy moment in our lives, knowing that before time began, you ordained that we all would be in this place with open Bibles in our laps, fellowshipping with you around this portion of your word father open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word grant us grace that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts this moment this next uh, section would be pleasing to you O god as we fellowship and enjoy and delight in you lord bless this time we pray in jesus name amen please be seated In 1754, think about that date. That's a long time ago, sort of. 1754. Jonathan Edwards, whom R.C. Sproul considered to be the godliest Christian, the greatest preacher, and the greatest mind that has ever graced the shores of the United States. Okay, in 1754, this man published a book called *The Religious Affections*. And in it, he described not religious emotion. He's not talking about emotions here. He's talking about the disposition or the affections that come from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. For example, describing the persecuted Christians in the Bible times, he wrote this. The world was ready to wonder what strange principle it was that influenced them to expose themselves to so great sufferings, to forsake the things that were seen and renounce all that was dear and pleasant, which was the object of sense. They seemed to the men of the world about them as though they were beside themselves and to act as though they hated themselves. There was nothing in their view that could induce them thus to suffer and support them under and carry them through such trials. But although there was nothing that was seen... Nothing that the world saw, or that the Christians themselves ever saw with their bodily eyes that thus influenced and supported, and supported them. Yet, they had a supernatural principle of love to something unseen. They loved Jesus Christ. For they saw him spiritually whom the world saw not, referencing 1 Peter 1, and whom they themselves had never seen with bodily eyes, Though their outward sufferings were very grievous, yet their inward spiritual joys, their religious affections, what I'm calling kingdom affections, were greater than their sufferings. And these affections supported them and enabled them to suffer with cheerfulness. This morning, I want to look with you at... Three affections in Scripture. Kingdom affections, re- religious affections. Specifically, love, joy, and peace. But to do that, in this passage, 22 through 23, I need to give you somewhat of the redemptive context to understand this. The book of Galatians is written to people struggling with with works righteousness, struggling to relate to God on the basis of their conduct. And and that context is important for us to understand and apprehend as we approach this passage. Now, I know many of you have heard some of this, but none of you have heard all of this. So let's spend a little bit of time giving you, let me uh, set you the context of our passage, the larger context. To do that, put your finger in Galatians and go back to to Genesis. We'll spend a little bit of time there. Genesis chapter 2, we'll begin with. When God created the world, he entered into a relationship with man. That was his plan. And when God created this world, he created it and us to fit the world in which we, we live, according to, to John Murray. So, for example, um, as the world is covered with 71% of it is covered with water, so we are 60% water. We fit the world that God made us to uh, live in. The, the atmosphere is oxygen. We breathe oxygen. Um, The fourth most common element in the universe is carbon. 18% of our bodies are are carbon. So we were made to fit this world. If we were made to live in water, we would have gills. We were made to live in a place where there was simply oxygen without water, and uh, therefore we have lungs. Well, God deigned to enter into a, a relationship with man as part of his creative a will, And part of that relationship, as you know, was based upon our work. Genesis 2, uh, uh, 17. God told Adam and Eve from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, taking John Murray's uh, a concept that we were fit to live in the world which God made, brothers and sisters, I have derived this language, which you've heard our default program And our default program is to relate to God on the basis of our conduct. You've heard that. And you see that. You see that, and even though we're saved, we still have this urge. Everything within us, in our um, um, natural being, is to relate to God on the basis of what we do. And to relate to, uh, to each other on the basis of what we do. That's our default programming. But it doesn't stop there. Because of the fall, we also now have a default passion. Notice with me Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent, or, uh, now the serpent was more crafty than, than the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said. Brothers and sisters, that very question tra- radically transforms the relationship that Eve and Adam had with God. The relationship where God was their authority, what he said went. Satan at this point is transforming it to, to, uh, to the point where now Adam and Eve are over God and able to judge him. Our default passion, brothers and sisters, is to control God. Is to, is to put God in the dock and examine whether or not he should be obeyed. Looking at God's word, asking, is this something rational? Is this, is this right? Should we do this? That's our default passion. My professor, Dr. Raymond, wrote these words. What precisely occurred in Genesis 3? And answer, our first parents permitted the serpent, through their embarrassment with God's authority over them, to challenge God's word with an alternative interpretation of the tree. When the pair demonstrated their, will, uh, their unwillingness to believe God on the basis of his bare claim of authority over them, which is what we ought uh, to do, by remaining silent in the face of the serpent's lie, that they, by that silence, permitted Satan to reduce the word of God to a mere hypothesis. This means, however, in a universe created by God, that the center of authority for man shifted from another to himself. Man demanded that he become his own authority and he determined for himself what is true and what is false. So that's our default passion because of the fall. Because of our creation, we want to relate to God and man on the basis of what we do. That's why we care so much about what other people think about us. But our default passion is to control God. It's to make God subject to our opinions, our views, our likes, our dislikes. If what he says seems foolish, it's foolish. Okay, then that leads us then to our default presumption. And our default presumption simply is that God is not good. Notice with me Genesis 3, once again starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, brothers and sisters, that question is an indictment. If I asked you, have you stopped beating your spouse? To answer that, yes or no, is to agree with the assertion that I'm beating my spouse. Or, Or better yet, have you stopped beating your spouse? If I say no, that means I'm beating her. If I say yes, that means I'm beating her. That's exactly what this question is. When he says, you shall not eat from, God says, you shall not eat from the garden. Well, that's a lie, brothers and sisters. Or eat from from any tree. That's a lie. God didn't say they, they couldn't eat from any tree. But for her to respond to that without questioning it is to agree with the assertion that somehow God's mean. God does not have your best in mind. He's a stingy God. Well, she does correct him. And the woman said to the serpent, but she corrects him to a degree. This planted a seed in the woman's mind which would um, grow and fester that God is not a good God. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Now, God didn't say that. But that goes in line with exactly what Satan is intimating in in the question. God is stingy. God is withholding good from you. God is not a good being. He's a mean God who doesn't have your best in mind. And because she bit there, Satan brings her and then him to the natural conclusion. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. In other words, God is a liar. What you have, have received from God cannot be trusted. God's a liar, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open. See, he's, he's holding you back from something good. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So our, pres- our default presumption, brothers and sisters, is to believe that God, in essence, is not good. You know what? I've talked with so many people, so many non-believers. Very few have a problem with the notion that God is sovereign, that God's in charge. That's why they are quick to accuse when a storm comes. Oh yeah, that's your God. See what your God did. No problems with the sovereignty of God. But every one of us in our natural being has a struggle with the goodness of God. We believe God is the ant bully. Every one of us does. In our natural state, we think God is is this being who's stingy and mean, and yet we want to relate to him on the basis of our conduct and one another. And we also place him at our disposal. We think him to be someone that we can examine and judge, and he has to give an account to us, just like Job. God, come and give me an account for why you do what you do. Now, brothers and sisters, I wish you stop there. That's our default disposition. All three of those things make up our default disposition. But it doesn't end there. Because when those things go unchallenged, that brings us then to our default pleasure. Notice with me, Genesis 3 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was. Desirable to make one wise, she took from his fruit and ate. Brothers and sisters, our default, or better yet, our creation pleasure is wrapped up in knowing, serving, loving, and growing in our understanding of God. That's our default, or that's our creation pleasure. That's how we were made, and that's how eternity will be spent. You and I will be in bliss and glory not because it's, it's so glorious because the streets of gold, we will be in bliss and glory in, in, in heaven because there we will have what we were made for and every fiber of our being will be, will be um, actualized. We will be able to enjoy God. That's our greatest pleasure as image bearers. But what did the fall do? It transformed that greatest pleasure into our greatest pleasure. Now is pleasing our flesh. Right? My flesh says that looks good. My humanist says that's what I want. That's what I need. And so we live our lives seeking after the pleasures of our human nature. And they never will satisfy. We can never get enough. But that's our default pleasure. Now brothers and sisters... It's a progression. Our default programming, which relates to God on the basis of our conduct in man, is, get this, nourished by the law. If you and I have this mentality that we're, we're about pleasing God or pleasing man, every religious law that we get, our, our, our default program corrupts and makes it into the, a platform to please God, to demonstrate how wonderful we are and every fiber of our being in that process resents that because we don't think God's good we know we can never we can never please him look at our lives look at how he treats us he must be mad at us so we opt therefore to do what we want to do and what we want to do is in our flesh we live according to the flesh Now, brothers and sisters, in this context, you have to understand this. Your flesh is static. It doesn't grow. It doesn't decrease in time. You can be the godliest person in the world or the most wicked person in the world, and your flesh has not grown or diminished, only its influence. Do you understand that? And that is why when we come to our passage, and Paul is talking to a group of people who have given themselves to their default programming, the default presumption, the default passion that leads them in our text to living according to the default pleasure, which is what they did, which caused all the problems in the Galatian churches. Notice with me verse Galatians 5, 19. We'll first back up. if 18, if you're led by the Spirit... You're not under the law. In other words, you do not have a law now that you have to pass in order for God to uh, to be pleased. If you walk by the Spirit, if you're led by the Spirit, we're free from that works righteousness system. But if you don't, the deeds of the flesh, the result of living according to the first three default uh, positions, default program, passion, and presumption, notice how that ushers itself into... The deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, okay, those are all sex sins. Then it transitions into religious sins, idolatry, sorcery, and then relational sins, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, this list is not exhaustive. Brothers and sisters, you gotta understand. That when you and I approach God according to our default program, and we view him the way that we want to because of the fall, and we view him as subject to us, as this Santa Claus God who owes us an explanation, it it is just natural for us to dive into the deeds of the flesh. But if you and I will walk by the Spirit, which means we're no longer living according to the principle of works righteousness, but Christ's righteousness... If you and I live according to the spirit and we recognize that God is good, that God's claim of, of authority ought to be submitted to by virtue of the fact that God is God and he's good and he's judge and therefore God's word says it, that settles it regardless of what I think. That leads, brothers and sisters, to a fruit. And that brings me to point B, the content and consequence of kingdom affection. It leads to affection. Notice with me verse 22 of chapter 5. But in contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now I'm going to stop with those first three. I want you to note, first and foremost, those are not emotions. They impact the emotions dramatically. They can. But the first three, fruit of the Spirit, are not emotions. They are affections. They are dispositions. They are religious, in the words of of Edwards, religious affections. Let me define them for you. The word love, agape. This is the divine love, the the unconditional love of God, which we get its definition from John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's the world that God loved? A world of people filled with rebellion and sin, but because of God's love. Now, does that mean he felt warm, fuzzy towards it? No. He gave, he sacrificed his only begotten son that that sinful, unworthy, um, unrighteous world might be saved. God's love is an unconditional love given to the unworthy. So we've defined love in John 3.16 as love is a determined act of the will, which always results in determined acts of self-giving, for people utterly unworthy. That is the first fruit of the Spirit. Is a, it is a kingdom affection. It's not an emotion. Okay? God didn't have an emotional response when He looked at the world. Okay. He 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 gave Himself. Okay? It's it's a it's a, a term of action, of sacrifice, of giving, holy giving for the, for that which is utterly unworthy. Joy. Joy, brothers and sisters, is another fruit of the Spirit. Likewise, not an emotion, but can re- translate and easily does to e- emotion. So joy is not an emotion. To rejoice involves emotion. Joy, rejoicing is, the, is, is joy expressed. But joy is not an emotion. It's the deep down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of the person who knows all is well between himself and God. Right? Right? It is well between God and myself. Because I know it is well with my soul that therefore I am filled, even in the midst of trial and difficulty, I'm filled with joy. And it's that conviction. It's well between me and God. The world may hate me. My business may be going down the tubes. My health may be compromised. But I'll tell you what, there's one area in my life That is a home run, which is a glorious thing, and that is my relationship with God. may not be the way I feel towards God, but what I'm saying is God's view of you, you know, is in the bag. God accepts you because of Jesus Christ. That's biblical joy. And then the last fruit I'm going to reference is peace. This references the tranquility of mind that comes from a saving relationship with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Accordingly, brothers and sisters, biblical peace most definitely will affect the emotions, but once again, it's not an emotion. Rather, it is the result of knowing that your greatest needs have been met by God. Okay, Peace comes from knowing your greatest needs are met by God, his character, who he is and what he's done. That's peace. Joy is knowing it's well between me and God. Peace is knowing that my greatest needs are met in life, in the rest of my life, in death, in eternity, by God. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the, the uh, um, uh, description, that's the, the content of the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice, would you, uh, with me, their consequence. I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, Matthew or, or uh, Galatians 5.22, that the first three stated fruit of the Spirit are what provide for the relational description that follows. If you want to be an individual who, in this passage, is patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, under control, that comes as the consequence of being men and women who are characterized by love, joy, and peace. You understand that. That's the relationship of those first three stated fruit of the spirit to the rest of the fruit. I want you to see, and this is what, what Edwards gets at that these affections are what produce godly living. It's what uh, produces a godly mind. These affections. So for example. 2 Corinthians, not first. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Let's talk about each one of them. Love. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. Edwards describes love as the controlling affection. It's the chief affection that controls everything else. It's the controlling affection. For the love of Christ controls us. Now, whether or not you think that's God's love for you or your love for him is irrelevant. The point is, whatever that love is, and I believe it's both, it controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live, get this, should no longer live for themselves because of love but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The only way you will never live for yourself, the way that you stop living for yourself, is by love. It's a controlling affection. As you and I give ourselves to love, guess what happens? We stop living for ourselves. But for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And so we see it relationally. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Listen to it. Love is what? These are all relational terms. Patient, kind. Those are what we just saw. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love is what produces those, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient, kind, not jealous, does not brag, does not, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take an account of wrongs suffered, but re- uh, does not rejoice and the righteous, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love does. Love in the life of of a Christian does those things. So if you want to be someone who who reaps the fruit of the Spirit, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, uh, self-control, it will not be you simply praying and praying, God, give me kindness, give me kindness. It will be as you embrace and grow in love. Secondly, would you notice with me joy? Nehemiah 8:10, the joy of the Lord is a strength. Not only is that a, a protection, the joy of the Lord is my protection, but it's a, it's, a, it's a refuge point from which we live and serve. For example, 2 Corinthians 8:1 through 10, well, 1 through 2. Listen to how, listen to what joy did in the life of God's people. Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, what did it do? And their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. The early church who couldn't afford it gave money to the body of Jesus Christ because of the affection of joy. Joy overwhelmed them to give. It moved them to give. That's what joy did. Notice in uh, Hebrews 10, the Hebrew writer writes, verse uh, 34, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How was the early church so able to give up what, the, what they had? Because of joy. It was in joy they accepted the seizure of their property. Without a problem, they didn't complain against God. They didn't say, bad God, and they didn't get angry at the people. They simply said, the joy of the Lord is my, my strength. And in that joy, take it, God. Notice peace. Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know that. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, what's it going to do? Peace guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Peace has this glorious, salvifically or sanctifying effect in the life of a Christian that it guards what you think. It guards the center and the core of your being and so dictates what you're going to think, what you're going to desire, what you're going to do, how you process life. That's the affection of peace. So would you notice those first three fruit of the Spirit are not just one amongst many of nine they are the controlling affections that impact, influence, determine the reigning, uh, the reigning six fruit of the spirit. Kingdom, uh, or, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote these words. You got them there. Regarding our religious affections or kingdom affections, true religion is evermore a powerful thing. And the power of it appears in the first place in the inward exercises of it in the heart. God impacts our hearts through, salvation, through through Christ's redeeming work. He impacts our hearts. Where is the principle and original seat of it? Hence, true religion is called the power of godliness. Now you hear that phrase, you never think about what that means. To understand that true religion... Godly affections, biblical affections are the power, are the enabling, are the enablement of religion. In religious matters, the spirit, the, the spring of their actions is very much religious affection. He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only, without affection, without love, without joy, without peace, never is engaged in the business of religion. How many people can recite the Shorter Catechism? How many people can quote Scripture, but how many of those people are struggling, go, I, I struggle with trust, I struggle with faith, I struggle with, with all these different things? And the reason why is because they think that if I learn these definitions... If I memorize this theology, it will change me. And it doesn't change you, brothers and sisters. What changes you is God working by and with his word affecting in you and me religious affections. Kingdom affections of love, joy, peace. When you grow in love, when you grow in joy, when you grow in peace, so you grow in your walk. If you think memorizing verses on anger will stop you from blowing up, it won't. Trust me, I've memorized a lot of them. If you think memorizing scriptures on purity is going to stop you from a lascivious struggle, trust me, it won't work. The only thing that, or, or yet, forget works. How God designed our being is for God's salvation, God's redemptive work to, to influence from the inside out, dwelling up in us, religious affections, which thereby is the power of godliness. Jack Miller wrote these words Notice how the fruit of the Spirit are arranged. The first three love, joy, peace are attitudes. The others are relational qualities. When asked which, for, which fruit they lack, many people say patience and self-control. Uh, Sadly, what people really want is a life that's under uh, a control, but they want the end product, not the love, joy, and peace that creates it. We all want to be self-controlled. We all want to be patient. Who wouldn't as Christians? Because those are the ones that show if you're not. So we want to be self-controlled. We want to be patient. But none of us wants to grow in our love. Or at least, nah, that's not fair. We don't, we don't think that that comes as we grow in our love for Christ. In our joy in the Lord. In our peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what produces those re- results. Incredible. Incredible. And that brings us then to the question of the hour. Well, then what, how, do we, how do we encourage love? How do we encourage joy? How do we encourage peace? And I want to end with these. Three passages with me. Luke chapter 7. How do we encourage love? Notice, all of these affections come from God. So we know God's going to be the, the giver of it. But God is not um, generic. Each one of these aditry, um, um, affections are generated, are, are encouraged, are um, uh, fed through a, ver- through a different facet of God's character. Notice with me Luke chapter 7. Luke 7 verse 41. You know this text, I'll read it fast. Christ is in the house of a Pharisee. The Pharisee thinks Christ is a prophet. Nothing more... And he's pleased to have Christ dine with him. Well, while they're dining, and as is the culture in that day, if you had someone over, people would, would crowd into your house, and they'd stand on the outside. There'd be people laying at the table, and the people on the outside could listen. And so that's what was going on. Jesus is there with his Pharisee, Simon. He's laying down, feet out. A whole group of people are there listening as he talks and discusses with Simon. And Simon's feeling pretty good about himself because he has this notorious, not a notorious, this famous uh, healer, Coming to, to town. He's a prophet. Um, but then what happens? A, a, a prostitute comes and starts wiping his feet with her tears and anoints his feet with a costly uh, perfume. And, and, the, and the Pharisee in his mind begins thinking, I was wrong. This isn't a prophet. Because Biblically speaking, if you relate to God on the basis of your conduct, God will only love you if you clean up your, your life. This woman's not clean. What should this prophet do to this woman? Kick her in the face. That's what right... Religion would do. Throw stones at her. Kick her in the face. Get her off of your feet. But Jesus doesn't. So this is where we pick it up. A certain money lender had two... And so Jesus said to him, Simon, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, another 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them therefore will love him more? Simon answered and said, I love this, I suppose. Um, he, can't, he can't be honest because if he's honest he get trapped. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has since that time I came and has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, this is key, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Brothers and sisters, do you know what what, what, um, um, grows love in the life of a a Christian? Coming to the apprehension, a greater apprehension, of all that God has done to, uh, to forgive you. How much sin he has forgiven you. Most Christians in this room right now, have their late, have their besetting sins and most of you compare those besetting sins with other people and you conclude with me that I'm not so bad yeah I'm a bad person and when I'm having a fit it's really bad but I'm no I'm no that and I'm no that and I'm no that don't you dare accuse me of that brothers and sisters you want to know why we struggle with love cuz we are so righteous we're so good we're so great we know so much. We're so satisfied with who we are. Yes, we could change here and tweak there. But basically speaking, look at me, world. I'm amazing. And if you didn't believe, if you don't believe me, let someone in your life this coming week accuse you of something else and see how quick you defend, how quick you spend at night laying there wondering, what could I say next to this person who thinks I'm a low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrel? Let anyone accuse you of anything ill and you'll have a you'll go nuts. We all believe that we are we are we are good enough. And yes, I got Jesus. That's my that's my God in my pocket, but we're good enough. Brothers and sisters, you grow in your understanding and apprehension of the glory and the greatness of God and the wickedness and the, and the uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, horribleness of your sin. That's when you grow in love. Matthew chapter 18 is the discipline chapter. Notice how it, how it ends. It ends with this parable about forgiving 10,000 talents versus 100 denarii. He who is forgiven much loves much when you understand how much you've been forgiven, when you come to the point in your walk w- with God where you, can just, where, where you can believe, not just say, but believe that you are the chief of sinners, that everyone in this world, you never ever look at and say, oh, they're horrible, they're worse than me. When you believe I'm worse than them, guess what adorns you? Forgiveness, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, self-control. Why? Because you recognize how much God forgave you. You want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit? Let the grace of God open your eyes to behold the glory of His love, the, gro- the, uh, the glory of His grace. Notice, uh, secondly, joy. First Peter 1 Peter six. Go there if you're in your Bibles. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6, so your electronic media... 1 Peter 1 6, speaking of our glorification, okay? Notice joy is all based upon what awaits us. Okay, joy is the disposition as well between me and God, and then it it, it wells over to what awaits us in Christ. Notice, speaking of our glorification, in this you greatly rejoice. That's joy expressed. You rejoice. Your joy, it just grows because of the glory that awaits us in Jesus Christ. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor. What is that? That's Jesus Christ, right? We know. That not only does glory await us, but the day is going to come when Jesus Christ stands up at the wedding feast of the Lamb and comes up to you individually and, and gives you praise, verbally praise, glory, and honor on that day. Is that going to happen? Yes, it is, Christian. I love this passage. I love passages in Scripture which are not describing blessings given to other people and by me, by the Spirit's application, applying it to myself. I love, I love those two, but I also love those passages of Scripture which still are prophesying about you and me, that we're there. We're going to be there, and, it, and this is one of those p- passages. The day is going to come when Jesus Christ comes up to you in the new heavens and the new earth and gives you praise, glory, and honor. Wow. What's the impact? And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see him now, but believe, you trust him, notice, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full, full of glory. You want to you you feed joy? Give yourself to understanding what awaits you in Jesus Christ. Understand you, you are forgiven. But more than that, understand that your God, whom you love, is at, is at peace with you and has promised you so many things. Come to understand those things, major in those things. Make that the object of your study, your prayer, your adoration. Grow in this uh, regard. And patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, self-control will come as a result. Lastly, peace. Sorry, I have to go fast on, on these. John 16, 29. John 16, 29. Notice what the text says. It's the Last Supper. Christ had been describing who he is and what he's going to do the whole bit. And the disciples are like, are they're they going, God, we don't understand. What are you talking about? And finally, God lifted the veil and they began to understand. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and, and are not using figures of speech. Now we know that. Now notice that you know all things. Peace, brothers and sisters, by way of footnote, is fed by the knowledge of who God is by his character. Okay? you're you're freed from um from death you're justified by faith there's peace with god because now you know what god is god is this is this father he's daddy he's no longer the judge who will uh, condemn he's your father and your advocate who uh, uh forgives but notice it's more now we know now now that you know i'm sorry now we know that you know all things that means he's 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 omniscient, which means he's ordained all things. And have no need for anyone to ask to uh, uh, question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. In other words, he's God. Um, behold, um, I'm sorry, then, he, then uh, Jesus answered, do you uh, believe? And they say, yeah, but not really. They have a whole lot more to grow. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. Man, you, I know the future. No, I'm ordaining you're going to be scattered. I know all things, which means I've ordained all things, which means you're going to be scattered. But no, it's according to my divine will. Okay? The time is going to come, you'll be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you, all of what he just said, that in me you may have peace. Come to understand, not only that the glorious forgiving grace of God that's forgiven you so much. Come to understand the glorious future that lies before you that will feed your your joy. But now come to understand that, brothers and sisters, it is well with your soul with regards to anything that happens in your your life. As as I defined it earlier, peace is that glorious um, affection where you realize your greatest needs have been met by God. Yeah, take away my wealth, take away my health, take away everything. God has met my needs. I don't need those things. I've got God. And I've got this sense of peace which surpasses all comprehension. And it's guarding what I'm thinking, what I'm desiring. Brothers and sisters, if you want to grow, how does grace translate itself into sanctification? Grace grows and inspires Religious affections. These are just three. There's a whole lot more. You read his book. There's a whole lot more. But leave this, uh, take this as an introduction. Grace um, implants and it grows, inspires uh, um, love, joy, peace. And when it does that, that's what grows us in our walks. For you and me to want self-control without loving God more, knowing the joy of the Lord and his peace, is akin to the person sitting there in his home saying, Lord, let me win the lottery. Let You've heard this joke. Let me win the lottery. Let me win. Please, God. For years he prays, God, let me win the lottery. Let me win it. And finally a booming voice comes out of heaven and says, buy a lottery ticket. Right? You know that, uh, that joke, Right? Brothers and sisters, we do that all the time. Make me holy. Make me self-controlled. Make me godly. Are you growing in, in your love? I don't like God. Um, are, you, are you growing in your, your joy? I don't have the joy of the Lord. I don't care about that. Just make me self-controlled. Make me look better to other people. Brothers and sisters, that's the same. God's not going to answer that, that prayer. How can he? If you and I are not growing in joy, love, peace now god can i suppose certainly he can but it'll be in spite of your prayer not be it'll be in spite of you clearly not because you are submitting to god and, and his word brothers and sisters. as i close with these words in any in almost every discipline and thing in life there are takeaways okay there are the things that there's a thousand things i could tell you about for example being a good student a lot of things we could talk about being a good student But give me the takeaway. The takeaway of being a good student is, one, have a plan. These are mine. Two, be disciplined and diligent to follow it. You want to be a great student? Get straight A's. Have a plan and be disciplined, which means you follow that plan, and diligent, which means while you're doing it, you're not letting your mind wander. You're not looking at your phone. That's a takeaway to be a great student, to be a great parent. Takeaway, I've got three of them. Man, I could talk to you about parenting for a long, 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 long time, but let me give you the, the takeaways. One, be consistent. Two, cultivate a relationship with your kids, an undying, deep, abiding relationship. Relationship trumps bad parenting. Thirdly, understand that you are God's authority and that, that, is, that authority is a stewardship given to you by God. So when your kids disobey you, you don't get angry because they're not attacking you. They're disobeying God's authority. That would be my, my three takeaways. We have that, right? I can go on and on and on. Great, A great driver, healthy walk, on and on, right? But brothers and sisters, the takeaway from, this, from, from um, sanctification, you want to grow in sanctification, take away. Cultivate, love joy, and peace. That's it. Now, that context, that lot there. How do you cultivate love, joy, peace? Okay? You got to gaze the glory of God. No, 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 no. But that's what you're after. In other words, don't take this sermon as one of many sermons you're going to put on your shelf and forget Brothers and sisters, may God use this to transform this congregation that we become a congregation whose main goal in their Christian life this week with regards to the walk with God is growing in their love for the Lord, fostering that love, growing in their joy that comes from a saving relationship with Christ, which means understanding, peace, growing in your peace. Brothers and sisters, if this becomes us, all of a sudden now, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithless, self-control. Brothers and sisters, those flow from love, joy, peace. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Lord, I know this is a mouthful. Whole, whole much more can and should be said. A book's been written on it, and many more have been written on it, Lord. But I pray, oh God, this overview, this survey you would use as we look at Galatians 5, to see this glorious relationship between these three descriptive words and the impact upon the relational words that follow God grow us in our love for you our understanding of what you've done at the cross grow us joy that comes from knowing what awaits us in you Lord help us to understand that and grow us O Lord in our understanding of your sovereign control what you are, who you are, what you do and how that translates to us being held in your hands where nothing can touch us. Lord, grow us accordingly. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would continue that work as we go to the table this morning. Feed us richly and abidingly as we gaze upon you and there consider all that you've given us by grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.